Welcome to the Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work. How being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Happiness Podcast, I'll be speaking with people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who have had career changes to entrepreneurs who have forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. I'm here in central London in Berkeley Square on a lovely uh, summer's day speaking to the wonderful Baroness Martha Lane Fox. Martha, welcome. It's lovely to be talking to you. Thank you. Um, can you map out for us your working life? So we all know about 1998 and com, uh, but if we start a bit before that, how did work start for you? Uh, work started for me when I decided aged about 15 that I wanted to start a dating agency at school. So I Any ulterior motive? Absolutely none at all. <laughs> Basically, I wanted to know what everybody's preferences on dating was. Uh, it didn't go very well, unsurprisingly. Then took a somewhat uh, sideways turn, decided I wanted to be a prison governor. I've always been interested in criminal justice, and I thought that that would be the best career route for me. I did really badly at university, and then couldn't get a job in the Home Office fast track, so that was out the window, and got scooped up by a consulting company being started through a friend of a friend of a friend, and um, was the 10th employee, and it changed my life because it was a startup, and it grew from 10 people when I arrived to 150 when I left. It was in the media and telecom sector, which was being blown apart by the internet. So I learned about the internet and got to travel all over the world doing that. I met Brent, who I went on to co-found lastminute.com with. And, you know, that was extraordinary. So it what was, did the company do? It was consulting projects for media and telecoms businesses. So, for example, my first project was for BT, and it was called What is the Internet? So you can imagine, that was a fascinating time back in 1994 to be doing that kind of work, and I was sent all over the place to do similar projects. And how old were you then? 21. So how did it feel going to uh, advise BT on what the internet was <laughs> as a 21-year-old? Well, as you can imagine, I wasn't advising BT exactly myself. I was the kind of lowest in the chain. But because it was a small company and because it was all about you know, ideas and people, and if you had good ideas, you were as valid as the next person, uh, we did end up having some really quite remarkable uh, opportunities. I think more than even BT, the one that sticks in my mind was when I was sent around the world, must have been a year later, so 95, to benchmark how different societies were progressing towards the information superhighway. Remember that? We were all going to charge down the information superhighway. And I went to Japan and Canada and somewhere in Africa, I'm sorry, I can't remember which country, to go and do a bunch of uh, conversations with governments and businesses about how they were um, planning on using this amazing new technology, which, given what then I've done in my life, was kind of prescient, and I really enjoyed that research and kind of policy piece. So were you interested in um, digital? 
technology. I didn't know anything about technology at all. I was a historian and I loved new ideas. And so I guess you know, if I do a bit of self-analysis, it was the promise of what the internet could create that I found so intoxicating, like many people, both kind of enterprise and commercial, but also, you know, I was a young woman finding a voice and it felt at that time, I'm not sure it's been true, that the internet was going to enable more young people to be able to do more from places that perhaps would have seemed impossible previous to it. And as a, as a young woman back then, did the, um, did the tech world feel embracing of you? <laughs> not exactly. Um, I worked in South Korea for Mitsubishi on a project for quite some time. And uh, when we gave a final presentation, my boss very kindly asked me to come up to present to the big boss of Samsung, which was quite a big deal, huge, enormous company, as you know, in South Korea, massively, uh, kind of like an institution there, I guess, half a lot of the economy. And so this guy was there, and it was a bank of men, kind of in descending order of importance alongside him, a huge, enormous room, me and my boss and the rest of our team on the other side of the room. And when I spoke, which I was allowed to say one thing in the presentation, they all clapped. No one else got a clap. And they went, ah, Tinkerbell, she speaks, she speaks. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God. So I've been working in this company for six months in the basement. And it was, I had no idea that that's why they were seeing me. Anyway, uh, it didn't get much better in the early days of lastminute.com. I was in the first and only meeting from a venture capitalist that Brent and I managed to secure because nobody was interested in our business. And we practiced every single question you could possibly imagine commissions on airline tickets, marketing spend, customer, you know, everything. The one question that they asked us, they asked to Brent, it was, what happens if she gets pregnant? So. And what did you say or well, he say? Do you say? know what? I wish I could remember what I said. He, good on him, didn't say anything and looked at me. And I think I said, well, I guess I'd have a baby, but I can't remember exactly. I wish I'd written it down. I'm vexed by how we have ended up with what should have been one of the most diverse and rich sectors imaginable being controlled, run, owned and monopolised by a very, very small handful of people that look the same. And why, why do you think that is? I think that um, what changed between 98 and now 2018, 1920, was, you know, when we started that business, it felt as though commerce was going to drive the web, that it was going to be individual, small retailers emerging, perhaps, you know, little businesses like ours, yes, wanting scale, not trying to be small in ambition, but enabling um, other people to have a, a voice and a distribution network on a global scale, but fueled mainly by commerce and transactions. Then, boom, platform businesses happened. And then all the businesses sort of changed in pace and scale. And those businesses came from much more of a kind of deep engineering culture than perhaps some of the early commerce businesses that have been led by the sector, if you like. And it's a bit of a clunky explanation, but I do think the fact that now Facebook and Google and, you know, arguably the Chinese similar businesses have such a grip of the internet is because they came from a different starting point and, and it's been very, very hard to fight back from that because they own now all of the distribution on the internet. So do you feel depressed now? I do, About yes. where it's all I got do. to? I do, I really do, because as we've seen again and again and again, this is about power, money and equality, as well as having a rich and vibrant and thriving, you know, society which is what the internet has now become and it's not just that all the rich jobs i mean sorry all the jobs that are paid well go to men because inherently coding jobs and jobs on tech skills are better paid 
And we have massive, by the way, gaps in those jobs. We've got 600,000 empty jobs in the UK right now. But it's also in, in, tech. in tech. But it's also that the power lies with such a small number of people and therefore they're not making very good decisions. I think you know, I'm on the board of Twitter and I think Jack himself would say, and he's one of the good guys, that the reason that all this hideous, horrible trolling and abuse started on Twitter is because it was four white guys who built that original platform. They'd never been shouted at in the street. They'd never walked home in the dark feeling a bit nervous, as every single woman on the planet has experienced. And I just think you wouldn't design for the same set of issues and things that you felt. So it really, really matters to have a diverse perspective of people building what is essentially our future. So, I mean, what do you do about it? Do you give up on it? No, you don't give up. You never give up. Uh, I think... I think a bunch of things. I think the first thing is it's really important if you're lucky like me and you have a voice and you have a slightly different both look and perspective, you use it. You know, I'm, I can't code, but I've always worked in technology. You don't have to be a technologist and we should encourage young girls, young women, women of all ages to go into the sector, returning mothers from work. But it's then also you've just got to do the hard work in companies of looking at every single bit of the chain. So if you're a tech business and you don't have any women, Look at how you write job descriptions. Look at how you recruit. Look at how you appraise people. Look at how you reward people. Look at your childcare, all of the different bits. It's not one thing. It's every single piece of the puzzle. And I absolutely guarantee you if you do that, you'll find you'll have more women in your organisation. So I think it's both individual and collective like everything. And probably if I was in charge of everything, I would also do some more uh, directive government policy around this stuff because I just think it's too vital. And if you had a magic wand and could make the government do one or two things, yeah. what would they be? Well, do you know what? I know this is unpopular, but I've come back to it increasingly. I made a radio show with my friend Fee Glover, the radio presenter recently for the World Surface, called My Perfect Country, and we took policies from around the world, assessed them and worked out whether if we were starting from scratch we'd want to use that policy. And one of the things we looked at was the um, policies in Rwanda that they initiated after the genocide around the quotas for decision makers in government and corporates. And they regulated that 50% of decision makers have to be women. And that's the key part of that. And I think we've got to that now, that we need some uh, really clear legislation about what equality looks like, because we're not getting there. And I think the second thing is we need to have enormous rethink of childcare and how both women return to work, but also then can manage with children in the workplace. Fathers as well, still, again, just a massive, enormous piece of the puzzle. So going back to the start, oh, yes. Martha, That's as we sit here up. by Barclay Square, outside a hairdresser. <laughs> it's um, one of my favourite locations, outside a hairdresser. <laughs> uh, with the sun on the other side of the street and lots of lorries going up and down. Um, yes, apologies, listeners. <laughs> how did lastminute.com come about. How did you meet Brent? How did the two of you have the idea? How did you get the money? How did you get the people? Well, a bunch of things. Firstly, it was Brent's idea, and he was very generous in uh, including me in it right from the get-go. And it was very simple. It came from extreme user need. He was always on the phone at six o'clock on a Friday night, organising what he was going to do that weekend. And like six phones, Brent had two phones on his desk and probably two mobile phones, and was going through a copy of a newspaper or a magazine. And he then saw that the internet enabled a much easier way of doing this because you could keep all the inventory live, you know, classic exchange, and that's what the technology was going to be brilliant for. And I remember sitting on the floor of his office because I was at Spectrum where he was, and I was he was the 10th employee, I was the 11th, I was kind of his skivvy, uh, did the hard research work while he swammed about. And... Um, 
he said, uh, we should do this idea. And so we then did. We went off a year. We went off and each got a bit more experience. And then a year later, went and started the business. And it was 1997, 98 when we started writing the plan. Uh, and it was... It's very hard to remember now and to kind of overestimate for people how strange it was to do that then. You know, now there's a tech business being started every hour, they tell me, in London. Every hour, right? We were the only people in the country who thought that this would be a good idea, and I don't say that because I think we were clever. We were nuts. We were just sufficiently nuts and very young, so it didn't matter. We had absolutely no interest in the plan at all from people who wanted to back it because no one thought that people would put their credit card details in the internet. So that was the battle we were fighting. So all you can do is just keep going. You know, we had to just start building it, believe we were going to get the money, talk to every single banker we could find, every single person with money, corral anybody we met that believed in us, my brother, somebody that had worked with friend previously, just get people going and start building the thing. And that's what we did, and we got lucky and we raised 600,000 pounds and then could get to the next phase and then we just kept going at pace, talking to suppliers, talking to distribution networks, building our customer and base. And what's your abiding memory? It's funny, I talk days. about this with Brent sometimes because we have such different memories of it. I remember absolute chaos. It, was, <laughs> it felt to me like we were like that all the time because we were either growing so fast we didn't have enough people to cope with it or some disaster was going to happen around the ticketing situation or... We didn't have enough product. We managed to get a deal from, bless him, a brilliant sales executive at Iceland Air called Haldor Haldudson, who I must have had about 85 phone calls with, who finally said, God damn it, I'll give you a £99 flight to New York, which was at that time really extraordinary. We sold out. We didn't have enough. All these kind of, it was chaotic. Brent remembers sort of organized chaos where we were making these clever strategic decisions. I don't quite remember it like that. But it was also exciting and fun, and it felt as though we really were building a whole new world of doing things and ways of doing things. And, you know, I was 25, I was working with a whole bunch of other 25-year-olds, so it was amazing. And are you good with ambiguity? I think I am, yeah. I, I like pinning it down, and I like a plan, but I am able to cope with not being necessarily to see quite round the corner. And able, I think, to say, okay, this direction looks right, but not in such a kind of rigid way that if it looks as though we should turn left or right, we should. That's where Brent and I, you know, we, we never fought. I can honestly say the only moment that we had, I mean, obviously we got anxious and stressed and had snaps, but one of the only fights we ever had was because he wanted to make the logo a kind of blue and I wanted it to be neon pink, which, as you can tell by my hair and my general uh, style is one of my key colours and I won that battle so um, beyond that though we both were able I think to work in these pretty uh, um, difficult situations and sometimes really tricky you know we went public and then the markets collapsed and we became villains of the country and the share price went from £5 to 19p and you know these are quite hard things to manage in any situation especially when you're still not quite 30 and you've got young people who thought that they were going to be gazillionaires and now had no money and no salary really but we were never we never wavered together in how we wanted to do things and that was quite uh, you know, a, a remarkable thing I think. and why do you think you click with Brent we're quite different but uh, also quite similar in that I like to think that it was because we shared an absolute belief in what the product should be and also Brent always said this and says it well better, more articulately than me today, you know, you want to hire people that you want to work for. 
because in the end you want to believe that the people that you're with can lead you over a cliff and that you'll believe it and that you'll have I mean in a good way that sounds a bit wrong I think maybe that's the wrong analogy but uh, I think we wanted to work with people that felt as though they would challenge us but they were smart that we could delegate responsibility to and create that environment that felt entrepreneurial and uh, action oriented so how opposite are were the two of you well, just in, in terms the, of your style uh, management style working style um, Brent is an obsessive about product detail in a way that I think I was more obsessive about the brand detail perhaps I mean that's a slightly clunky uh, division because he was across all things extremely effectively but uh, I think I probably took more of a lead on the team and building the kind of belief in the team and recruiting the people and all of that part he had a very clear vision of what the pro- how the product should develop and then um, worked more closely with the tech team so that was a good combination. I am quite obsessive about some things, but he takes it to a whole other level. And could you imagine it? <laughs> could you imagine doing it on your own? No, you know what? That's something I think about a lot. Whenever I have started things, and I'm lucky to have started a bunch of different stuff in different sectors, I always think it's better in a pair. If you can get that right, it can be the most rewarding thing. Because this is a lonely, difficult, uh, preoccupying and restless kind of occupation and to be able to share that with someone is really a, a joy and can I think lead to better results when you get it right I mean you have to find the right person and trust them I don't think it works if you have for one minute suspicion about what that other person's motives or values are but I never had that you know I started a crazy business lucky voice karaoke business got 10 bars around the country a guy I started it with called Nick who runs it and as you know I'm not the CEO he is is you go again, it's just you go to what are our values, what do we want to try and instill both for our customers and the people that work with us and that I think is the most important thing and even again jumping again when we created the government digital service in central government sounds again like a ridiculous thing to compare it with but that was a pretty entrepreneurial enterprise because you're trying to get something off the ground in the middle of government we did it with a, a bunch of people who all had very 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 clear views about what public service should look like and what the internet could enable for people who wanted to deliver better services, particularly for the most vulnerable. And do you have a view of the shape of people that you find it hardest to work with? Uh, the characteristics that um, you I, find I think challenging? I have probably mellowed over time because I now, I hope, I try and appreciate in people you know, what I might have said if you'd asked me that 10, 20 years ago would be intransigence, you know, challenge not being energetic, you know, not being optimistic. And now I actually think I quite like some grit in the oyster. I think it's quite good to have people around you that are uh, constructively challenging, yes. I don't personally respond well to people who I don't feel realise that everything is about the journey. You know, I think you have to try and be as self-aware as possible. I screw up all the time. I know I don't do a very good job at getting better at it, but I'm trying. And I think that it's really helpful if you can be open-minded about yourself as well as your work so that's I think the one characteristic I do find hardest and if you were giving advice now to somebody opening uh, a tech business or any business yeah what, what would you share with them I mean you? I think uh, a couple of things firstly back to what we started our conversation with it is absolutely essential that you build diversity of thought in your team any product that is going to be released on the world, particularly in the online world, so it's a very noisy motorbike, I could hear that, will be better and more robust and more useful if it is built from a 
broad set of um, beliefs and experiences, both lived and learned. And that is partly about gender, but it's also about race, it's also about socioeconomic background, and it's also about disciplines that you understand, you know. I told you I'm a historian. I think there should be a historian in the room of every product decision. It may sound ridiculous, but I see that again and again when I'm in Silicon Valley. There's just this absolute belief that coding can sort out the problem. And I just do not agree with that. I think code is a very useful tool, but it's amplified enormously when you match it with the arts, with philosophy, with humanity subjects, and it gets dangerous when you believe in the optimization of everything. So that's the first thing, and I think that is an absolute kind of fundamental. And then the second thing is just start building it. You know, at lastminute.com, we needed quite a lot of money even to begin to think about how to build travel connectivity. That was hard. So to get our product off the ground was difficult. And remember, there was no Google, there was no Facebook, there's no way of just, boom, going there. Now that's different. Just build it and show the thing, because then you'll be more seriously taken by venture capitalists from any angle. So just get going and build the thing. Okay. So you got going with Brent. It's a huge success. Yeah. Take us on from 98. I say this sometimes uh, in... Uh, levity, although it's not a very laughing experience. I think I'm probably one of the only people on the planet to have survived the dot-com crash and then the real-world crash. Uh, and I only mention it because my working life changed substantially because when I left lastminute.com I was having a few months off before I was going to do my next thing and I fell out of a car and I broke 28 bones and I had a stroke and I spent two years in hospital and I had to learn everything again and rebuild my entire life, my body and my brain and what I wanted to do and be. And uh, that's quite a thing. Having that time to reflect, being unwell, two years... It's not really a time to reflect. I mean, you're grasping for life, so it's... I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's how I would characterise it. Every single minute is consumed with pain, operations, some micro-movement you have to complete to get to the next thing you have to try and learn to do again, so... There are things I struggle with every day, so it doesn't feel it's ended. That period of time has ended. And I think, uh, I hope it didn't change me too much. I think it's annoying because it is like another job. It takes up a bit of your head that I wish it didn't take up. That's the kind of practical level. To me, myself, I think it just reinforced that I'm so lucky to have the best friends and the best family in the world. You know, there was not one day in those two years that I didn't have someone with me. And I, you know, what, how incredibly lucky. And it goes on and it is, continues to be quite a thing. And so I had wanted to, I was, you know, all kinds of things I thought about doing. I wanted to go into public service of some kind. I wanted to start another business. I, there was lots of things I wanted to do, but they were taken off the table quite resolutely and completely. So it took some time. I started my crazy karaoke business because I was doing it with my friend Nick and he was running it. I... Uh, started a small foundation with my own money to give to causes that I cared about. It was just, you know, little ways of stepping back into work and finding fulfillment. And then I, you know, started being able to actually walk and not be in a wheelchair and I went on some boards. I joined the board of Channel 4, Marks and Spencer. And then I had this um, really incredibly lucky break and huge opportunity and Gordon Brown, the then Prime Minister, asked me if I wanted to come and be the digital champion for the UK heard about me, I don't know, I think I met Sarah actually at something and she'd been interested in kind of my views on tech 
And I, he asked me to look at particularly the people that weren't online. And it just led to a real journey and gave me a massive opportunity because working at that level for a prime minister, as you know, is quite extraordinary. Um, because I wasn't being party political, it was a kind of neutral issue. I was then kept on by Cameron. And I had this five, six, seven years where I was trying to help build the case to get more money into getting people online at the most basic level, but then starting up the government digital service and being involved in how to give um, institutional resilience around technology to the government. And that has been fascinating. So now I feel, you know, I like hearing about the latest startup, but that's not my world. What I'm interested in is how to make sure that our establishment, our institutions, have got the tools of the modern age in order to help us as citizens and have the best possible uh, government that we can. And you often hear people say that it'd be great to have successful business people like you uh, in the government, uh, helping the government. Yeah. Uh, is government like business? No, it's not. But I think that sometimes people think the lines are too starkly different, right? I think that the motivations can sometimes be different for people working in government, both bad and good. Um, but I, you know, in the end, I think that I encourage everybody to try and think like an entrepreneur in whatever they're doing, because whether you're in a business, in a big business, a small business, starting your own one, or in a huge, enormous conglomerate, or whether you're in a government department or a minister or whatever, I don't think you should lose sight of who you're trying to serve. And that is the most basic, fundamental entrepreneurial instinct, I think. If you get too far away from your customer or your user, I mean, you know in business you're stuffed, but as an entrepreneurial business you're completely stuffed because you've got to keep very close to what it is you're trying to build and for whom. And that should be as true in government, I think, as it is in a business. So, so how, sorry to interrupt, how would you define an entrepreneur? Well, I think it's, what do you think that I means? Think it's feeling a sense of autonomy about what you're doing and being able to see you as your own agent for change rather than kind of imagining that you have to you know, be in a system that is nothing to do with you because I don't think that's the way the world works and I think that even if it feels as though you don't have many of those levers and I, I'm not being uh, insane, I realise that if you're working a factory line for an Amazon packing plant you have little autonomy so I, I take it as a privilege of a certain type of job. But, you know, arguably, increasingly, we know the stats show this, that young people are going to have many, many more lives and careers than even I've had. I've had, I think, 11 or so. I think the numbers are that people born today, we don't even know what their jobs are going to be, but they're going to have a minimum of something like 35 different jobs. So that's quite entrepreneurial, because in the old days, you'd go into a job, you'd be there for decades. Now, you're there for a few months, and that's not so weird, even. Or you're doing an Uber job, and you're also doing another type of job, you know. You only need to talk to all of the uh, people who are working in the gig economy to know that there are about six different things happening at the same time, and that's very entrepreneurial. So I think, to me, it is about feeling that sense of autonomy and as though you are an agent for change. Okay. And so that feeling in government, do you, do you think people in government feel that? Do you think you're an exception going in? I think that um, it's, it's mixed. You know, I think that if you're a minister or a... Um, member of the political classes in government, you can feel that because you have many more levers you can pull in a way and you're directing things uh, in a strategic way. I think if you're a civil servant, you can often feel like you have to take yourself out of it and that's quite difficult. But I still think even if you're working within the mandate of whatever policy that has been determined by government, you should always feel encouraged to both challenge and always say, well, who is this actually helping? Who's our end user here? Is this right for citizens? And I saw that again and again when we were building gov.uk. 
we were kind of letting out these amazing people who'd only ever before been writing policies to publish on a website. And now they were actually meeting users and working out what design of the service the user wanted. And that was just an incredible freeing experience for them. So I think that it's, uh, although it may feel remote to people in government, and I'm not naive about the complexity, I think that's what we should be striving to, is joining up more closely the modern tools we have, the policies we're making, and the end users that we're trying to serve. And you do so many different things, Martha. You, um, you're on the board of Twitter, you're on the board of Chanel, um, you still advise the government on uh, IT and security. As you said, you've got your karaoke I st- I bars. Started, I started a charity called Dot Everyone, yeah, building a movement absolutely. for responsible technology. And, That's and, my and so you, I think the question everybody listening to this would have to ask <laughs> you, uh, given that you're a mum with young kids as well, how do you find the time? Well, do you know what? I really don't work as hard as I think people think I do. And, and I mean that absolutely for, for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, I can't. I need to block out big bits of my week just to regroup physically. I try not to have meetings on Fridays and I'm absolutely maniacal about the early mornings where I do my physio and I can't function without that. So that is just, you know, there's, that makes of certain set bits of your diary. And I feel lucky that I can do those things and move the pieces as I want. And again, as, as you know, board directors are you have to be there when you're there and you have to think about things and be prepared and you know take the meetings obviously if there's things that are interesting that could help you be a better board director but you're not running something it's very different I'm not running anything anymore I don't have yes I have responsibility for everyone or for Lucky Voice but I don't feel that kind of oh my god midnight feeling of panic about it because I've got amazing CEOs that are working with me so it is different my main job, I think, is to stay curious and stay informed. And that's just a different kind of skill. It's about reading, meeting people, making sure you're not becoming too in- internal, you're still being external through whatever mechanism. Uh, and I think those are the things that I try and preserve in my working life to make me good across the things I'm doing. And then the other remarkable thing is in... Uh... 2013, you were ennobled in recognition. Well, I wasn't ennobled, I applied. I applied. Whether you applied or not, you were ennobled. (laughs) I was, yes. But I think sometimes people don't realise that you can get into the House of Lords by filling in an application form and having an interview if you're absolutely insane, which I clearly was in 2013. Yeah, I'm a crossbench peer, and I thought that it would be a because of having this slightly peripatetic life and not having one route, I thought this might be a place that I can kind of ground some of the stuff that I can do. And I was so much more interested in the policy world, having done all that work in government. So I applied, not really honestly thinking that I would get in. Now, I thought they might say, well, come back in five years when this blah, 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 blah. But they did say yes. And you brought down <laughs> the average age. A bit, yes. At that point, there have been a bunch of younger peers come in since then, which is great. But at that point, I was the youngest woman. I was 41, I think. And... Uh, Yes. And what was that like, uh, going into the House of Lords at the age of 41 was, as a woman? It was uh, mixed, I think I can say. Not entirely happy. Uh, you know, the crossbench group is extraordinary because you get a very uh, broad selection of talented people. And people have run the civil service or the army or major corporations who don't want to be political. And then, and then me. So that was kind of a bit uh, intimidating. But also the place is intimidating. You know, I'm used to building things and the scrappy teams and everyone sharing a desk and all of a sudden you're in this very august, you know, red velvet in surroundings. 
And I don't know, I definitely surprise people with, you know, I wear trainers and I have a pink streak in my hair and I hope I'm always respectful, but I'm also provocative. And what we're going to do now, uh, Martha, is just walk through the Engaging Works yes. Workplace Happiness Survey. The um, truth will out now. The truth <laughs> will out. There are 16 questions okay. to try and measure how happy you are at work. Mm-hmm. The challenge for you will be thinking about which work. Which work. I'll just which, do general life. MLF life. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? Do you know what? That is one area I feel very lucky because I made so much money from lastminute.com that I don't really need to be paid anymore and I'm not after squillions. I was, you know, it's unbelievable how if you're young and you'll make a few million quid, then, you know, it takes a lot of pressure off. Did that change you? I hope not. I mean, you know, some people would have then thought, well, you must have gone to make 20 million rather than, you know, a few million, which seemed like a lot to me. For me, it just has given me that safety net to not to feel like I have to work for one particular motivation. I can be a bit more varied and balanced. And Did I feel it make you lucky. happy? It didn't make me happy, but it saved my life because it got me out of Morocco when I had the accident, you know, could pay for private planes, private healthcare, and again, that's the sliding doors thing in my head frequently. It's kind of, did I, yeah, I think about people that haven't had that who would be dead. Do you feel recognised when you do something well? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because no one is, I don't have a boss, and I, so I made a speech, and I thought, pretty knockout speech about defence recently, to a, I was the only woman speaking in 40 men. And I sat down and I said, I feel cross that I'm the only woman talking about this subject, about security, because I sit on the Committee of National Security. And the man sitting next to me said, well, it's not a very girly subject. So I'm going to put five for that. So how did that make you feel? Cross. I wish I could have come up with a better answer. Do you have enough information to do your job well? Well, again, this is an interesting one because I don't feel like I know anything. And I think if you say yes to that question in the world that I am in then you're kind of ignoring the fact that you can always know more so I think if I'd answered that question in a job where I was a more specific job I'd have said probably that's in your control but I don't feel that's in my control because I feel like I can always learn more about the climate I can always learn more about security and defense I can always learn more about technology so I think I never quite have enough information but I think that's but what you're getting at might be, do I have access to it? So I probably can. I'm going to say a nine, not a ten. There we go. Do you feel information is openly shared with you at work? Well, I make it openly shared with me. That's a ten, yes. So in all that you do, I mean, just reflecting back to last minute. Yes. Did you feel that uh, you knew what was going on? No. I mean, yes, that was too quick. I say no quickly because I didn't feel at the macro level... I still felt very young. Did I feel like I knew what was happening in lastminute.com, by and large, but there was always the kind of, oh my God, that was a consequence of that happening. And you know, some customer would ring up with a problem and it would be, oh Jesus Christ, we had no idea that was gonna happen. But you know, we still, we got to 3,000 people, but that's not unmanageable. You can still talk to people quite a lot about things that are happening. The reason I said no quick so quickly was because I, in general terms, I knew nothing about the world. I was just building from the bottom up, right? Did I know about how to take a company public? No. Did I know about the implications of doing that? No. Did I know about the travel industry? No. So it was that funny combination of I knew us, but I didn't know the world. And did you ever feel that you were being kept in the dark, that people knew things and bankers, wasn't being shared? Bankers. bankers. When we were going public, bankers kept us in the dark. And I look back now and I'm not going to use the word corruption. I'm just going to put it out there. And so how did that make you feel? <laughs> um, 
uh, cross, cross. I think that the IPO, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens around flotation of companies, particularly in bubbles, that is not particularly edifying for anyone involved. But I'm not sure. I think it was too much in it at the time. Okay. Are you empowered to make decisions? Yes, I am lucky enough to be empowered to make decisions because most of the things whoops, that I do, I uh, am in charge of. Uh, the, the qualifying to that, which I maybe should have meant la- said a nine, is that, as again, when you think about things like the climate crisis, which I'm really trying to re-engineer into everything I do, it's hard to know where to start with those decisions. But that's leadership, I would say. Do you feel trusted to make decisions? Um, I do feel trusted to make decisions. I was just hesitating thinking about some of the Lord's work where you're not making so many decisions. You know, like, I'm on this joint committee. We oversee the National Security Advisor. It's a collaborative effort. It would be all wrong if each of us all individually felt we were making decisions all the time. But I do feel trusted, generally. You trust yourself (laughs) to make decisions. As long as I'm listening to the people around me and reading enough and feeling like it's not just me deciding, yes. Do you find it hard to decide? No. Do you, do you ever have a decision when you sit there and you no, think, yeah, no, I, I really don't know yes, what to do Yes, I now. do. But I talk to people about it. I try not to do it by alone. Um, but in the end, I don't think there are any... I mean, of course, there are very bad and good decisions, but I mean, you have to just sometimes make the decision and then work through the consequences. Okay. I'm going to say nine for that. Do you have the resources you need to do your job well? Yeah, I'm lucky because I do have resources. I have an assistant. I have help. I have those organisations that I can call on. Uh, I just don't have the physical resources sometimes, but that's what, a bit different. And what about the Lord's work? Do you have somebody no, who I helps don't, you? I don't, no, I don't, actually. So when, when all the papers that's come me, up... That's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And does that absorb a lot of time? Uh, too much time, probably. Do you feel your views are heard at work? Uh, I'd have said an eight for that. I, generally, yes, but the Lord's is sometimes a hard place to get your views heard. And I think that that's a lot about the organisation and, and less about... And what about as an NED? What about a uh, Chanel no, I, and Twitter? No, I do, actually. But I think that comes from, over time, you build your credibility and you try and use your voice wisely and build networks. So, but I do. Cares for my well-being. Well, that's a hard one because I'm in charge of my well-being. Yes. So I'm in charge of my well-being and I'm trying to care for it, so I'm going to give myself a 10. And then what might you do to think more about your own well-being? I've got much better at it, especially because of the accident. So I know that I need to have time to read and not just read about the subjects I'm working on, but read novels. I need to go to the theatre. I need to go outdoors. I need to walk about. I need to. So I've got. I've learned about what that looks like for yeah. me. Do you rarely feel depressed or anxious? I'm lucky. I do rarely feel depressed or anxious. So then oh, you're high. Oh, sorry. Hi. You're ten. rare. You're a ten. A ten or nine. I'll give it a nine because everyone does a bit. It sounds as though you've got a huge capacity not to be overly. No. worried about things. Well, I think that's another thing the accident probably gives you, is it just, you know, in the end, when you are not sure whether you're going to be able to walk, and I still feel worried, will I be able to, it does put things in perspective. Do you feel you do something worthwhile? Yes, I do. So why do you I, feel you do something worthwhile? Because I would not be able to live with myself if I didn't, and I try to only say yes to things that I think are worthwhile, and that might be worthwhile to me, but I think I have a kind of access. The most important thing to me right now is to contribute to, you know, the state of the world, and I don't mean that in a grand way. You know, I feel Twitter is important because it's having a big role in the world, and I want to try and edge it as much as I can to be as best as it can. I care about what happens in Parliament, and I want to use my voice to say to the tech sector, do things better. And so in the scale of things that you do, yep. in terms of doing something yep. worthwhile, how, how would you rank them down? Where, where would Twitter or Chanel be or 
Well, I actually think they'd be quite high because I, I think dot everyone and it's hard. I have the kind of you know, I'm yeah, on the board. Dot, everyone. dot everyone's pretty high because we're building a movement for responsible technology. I think we've changed the dynamics of the noise and conversation about that over the last couple of years, and I'm proud of that. And it feels like an important question to be answering, like what kind of tech do we want to build for the future? Um, and so I'm sure I'm not getting it all right, but I. Yeah, I, I am trying to focus on things that I think matter. So and which of them do you feel is slightly less worthwhile than the others? It's not less worthwhile. Or what I, would go first? I think what I've now learned is in the Lords you can spend a lot of time doing stuff that is inconsequential, right? So I don't think... I mean, it's good to talk in debates sometimes, but it's not, it's not going to move the dial unless you use that to then do something on the outside world. Asking questions of ministers can be useful if it's quite specific, I think, to an outside world thing that you want to change. The committee work, I think, is valuable, but I think I used to spend quite a lot of time in the Lords just being there, and that's actually completely irrelevant, and now I've got a bit more confidence. I don't feel I want to do that. Do you feel proud to work for your organisation? Yes, because, again, I don't think I could work for organisations that I didn't think were worth working for. So, do you feel proud of Twitter? Yeah, I do. Not everything that we do, and not the, all the things that happen on the platform, but I'm proud I work there, because I think that it is an important... Uh, it's an important voice in the world. Twitter isn't a voice, but it gives everyone voices. And I feel proud that I have an opportunity to try and help shape it in the future. And it feels so angry. Yep. Is but that it, a good thing? No, it's not a good thing, of course. Uh, and I, I would dispute... My Twitter doesn't feel very angry. I think that that's one of the issues. And I think that um, there's a lot of work going on in the company about the seven-year view of Twitter. What does it want to look like in seven years, rather than the kind of reactionary nature of whether there should be a white supremacist on the platform last year? It's like, what will it be in seven years? And I think that uh, it's really important to keep having those very tough conversations. So I know that some people have a horrible experience of Twitter, and I don't want it to be like that. I don't find it like that. I do follow a broad spectrum of people. Do you follow Piers Morgan? I do. Would you ban him? <laughs> I think he's got a full file of the rules like everyone. There are a bunch of people. And what do you think of the President of the United States? I don't like the personal, personally the President of the United States, but I don't think that means his voice should be cut off. And unfortunately, I now think it's a, a kind of, as Jack's point is, it's now of national, natural, national sorry, interest, that voice. So that's kind of important. Right. How would I like you to mention your friends to work at my organisation? Well, the idea that any of my friends and family would want to work anywhere near me is quite hilarious, but I'm going to make a 10 to try and encourage the them to do it. The karaoke business. Definitely. Do you feel you're treated with respect? Hmm, sometimes. I'm going to put that at a five, actually, because some of the things I do are in tough places. I don't mean as in I'm deprived, but as in I'm often the only woman in the room. I'm often the only woman that comes from a particular background like me, and I often am difficulties because of you know my physical challenges and sometimes that means that I am struggling to have the authority and the credibility do you enjoy your job nine out of ten yes the only time as I don't are when I feel I'm either trying to do too much and it's not having an impact or when I know I've done something very badly which is often how do you feel I have a good relationship with my line manager I don't really no, think yourself. I can answer that it's either question your shareholders I have a or pretty yourself. good relationship with my line manager I'll give it a nine <laughs> I'm a bit boring on this not very good spectrum okay here we go 17 do you feel you're being developed 100% yes because I'm always doing challenging things and I think that's the key to being developed do I feel happy yes I'm very lucky I do feel happy at work 10 great now there are three questions Martha uh, on what you would change to improve your workplace happiness. 
So if you could do three things, yes, what would you they type be? Because I'm not very good at typing with my hand. Yeah. Uh, I would like, first of all, um, gender balance in all the places I work, and not just where I am, but the whole way through the organisation. Okay, that's the first one. The second one would be a massive rethink of um, childcare. Yep, and your third one? Uh, I think this is kind of a, a, a tricky one to articulate, but I'll just try and express what I mean. I think that too often, organi- it's a bit back to the entrepreneurialism thing about not losing sight of your user or citizen when you're working in government. I think that very often in organisations we lose sight of the people that we're really trying to help and what we're actually trying to do for the for whatever aspect of the world we're working in. And I think trying to bring those voices in tied organisations more is absolutely essential. So, you know, I believe we should have many more young people in Parliament telling us about the kinds of issues they're challenged by or want us to worry about, especially in the House of Lords where we have that slightly longer perspective. We should be thinking and listening to what 10, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds are telling us. So it's about trying to reimagine who should be in the debate and that's beyond the gender balance I'm not okay. quite sure so, so if I was to put more diverse debates yes, yes. And, young, and younger voices as well okay so those are all the questions great now what we do is some filter questions yep so at the end we can compare you okay. with people that look like you I'm female I am unfortunately in this horrible age bracket now 45 to 54 eek you are management rather than management non-management which, Which job? Oh, let's have a look. Yeah, your chairman, CEO. Yeah, I wish I'd been more in good at finance. That's what I'd have liked. Which industry do I work in? Hmm, that's yeah, a tricky one. I think you've probably got to go tech here, haven't you? Okay, tech. I live this in the Fiji. Got data. We've got Whoa, data from we've got 130 so many countries. Data countries. Yeah, we do it all across the world. This is great. Okay. Uh, tens of thousands of people do this. There we go. We're nearly there now. I am this white. is the last question. Your ethnicity. Finish. Now, this normally dun, dun, takes dun, dun, about dun. 10 seconds to okay. come through with your results. Martha. Okay, here we go. Here we yeah. go. I've got a 906 out of 1,000 happiness rating. <laughs> Do you know what? If my partner Chris was here, he would be laughing his head off. He's like, how come you're always so jolly? He's can wake up, let's just say, slightly less jolly. And every day I bounce out of bed. I'm and today lucky. the global mean yep. is 654. And your in industry, six eight three, and this will be for women in management uh, in the industry. I think if you went for uh, men, it might be slightly higher. Yeah, yeah. But if you go for people who are doing coding, it's lower. Yeah. So six eight three. So you're above, well above. And then we look at the six areas we talked about. So reward and recognition, yep. uh, which is probably your uh, joint lowest with job satisfaction, but still green. Information, Seems funny, high, empowerment, high, is a funny well-being. Thing, isn't it? Because yeah, I know it sounds kind of arrogant to say that when I know I get lots of people saying well done to me about stuff, but it's what I guess I mean is about you have your own determinant of what recognition means, don't you? And I don't mean like I want people to say you're marvellous. I want to feel like it's actually making a difference to the things that you care about. And if I did for the axis of I care about the technology sector, well, I don't think it's going very well. I care about the climate. I don't think that's going very well. I care about women in public life hard to say that's going particularly well so that's what I mean about recognition in a way so for your um, mental health you yep. score well above the average yep. which is good and then we've got uh, stickiness so you're not going to stop doing what you're doing you're happy doing what you're doing we have a choice and then you're it. an apostle for what you do yep. you're off the Richter I think that is basically well my above job. the industry yeah. <laughs> that is my career job. development is cool and you're cool on inclusiveness 
and you're cool on empowerment. So in all these matrices, yeah. you're scoring well above the uh, the average. And on sense of purpose, again, you're well above I'm the lucky. average. You are very, very lucky. So two questions finished, Martha Lane Fox. First is, if there is one song that makes you feel happy, what is it? <laughs> uh, it is Get Happy, I think. Judy Garland sings it in a musical called Summerstock. I used to OD on MGM musicals from the 1950s when I was little. And that is the, was on my Desert Island disc. It's one of the only Desert Island discs I don't regret from my choices. Shout out, come on, get happy. We're going to the promised land. We're heading across the river. Martha Lane Fox, thank you very much for your time. No, for You've been a me. wonderful guest. Thank you. And it's wonderful to see you so happy, smiley and full of life. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.